Before I read this text, I just want, uh, for those of you that don't know me, I, uh, my name is Joe Brown. I'm one of the pastors around here. Um, and I get the privilege, honor and privilege to be able to read and preach on one of the foundational texts of our faith. Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11, which I'm about to read, uh, is, I mean, if you had a top 50 texts in the Bible that are really, uh, have breadth and depth to them, uh, this would be it. Um, this is, this would be in the top 50. Let's say that. I haven't done the math on that. But here we go. I'm going to read uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It's in your bulletins as well as up on the screens behind me. And you should hear it and respond to it as such. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Uh, if you've been with us, if you've, uh, whether you're live or live streaming, we've been looking through the letter of Paul to the Philippians. And if you notice, in the context of this whole passage, Paul is talking about character. Character matters, right? Character matters. Like, not just what you believe, but who you are and how it in infects your heart, mind, soul. Uh, you notice this in, you know, chapter 127, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. The verses right before this that Steve preached on last week was all about humility, right? All about this, you know, um, make me happy by living as part of your union with Christ. Love, unity, humility. And then we have this great text. And then right after this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling God works in you. Do everything without complaining and arguing, becoming blameless and pure. Uh, Later on, striving to the prize. What Paul is doing is he looks at the Philippians and says, you have a problem. You're very proud. You have a problem. You think really highly of yourselves. Now, they have the problem. You and I don't, right? You and I don't have that problem. Okay, that's a joke. We all, we all struggle with this. We all do, right? I mean, pride is, some have said pride is the first sin, right? It's that looking at Adam and Eve when they looked at God, they looked at what he had and said, well, I think I could be that high. I could be that big. Isaiah, when he was talking about what God said to Satan, the great enemy, God said to Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. God said that's what Satan is believing. That's what Satan was about. And then we just read what Christ is about. 
Which one's closer to you? Don't answer that. I don't want to answer that. You see, humility and pride is, well, just something that you and I all struggle with. But what Paul does in this text, he, last week, go back and listen to that sermon about humility, what humility is about. What I think Paul does in that text and in this is when he's looking at humility, looking at the lack of it in the Philippians, he says, the problem is you're, re, you're oriented wrong. You're oriented wrong. Uh, two days ago, I went on a bike ride. I love going on bike rides. If you know me, you know that's just like how I relax, but I hadn't done it in a long time. You know, it's cold and rainy and pandemic. Um, But I took my bike out and I went to the Capitol Trail and I just rode my bike. This was a couple days ago. And I had inadvertently, because I took the front wheel off when I was loading into the car and I had to put the front wheel back on uh, when I got there to ride, I had inadvertently put the front wheel on slightly askew, but I didn't know it. So I rode, and as I rode, the front brakes were rubbing up against the tire. Now, I don't have some of those fancy brakes that some of you do, those disc brakes. Wow. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm not fancy like that. I have those old brakes that you and I remember. You push it, and then the rubber slams on the side of the brakes. That's the kind of brakes I have. And this one just kept on rubbing up against, the right one kept rubbing up against the tire. And so as I'm riding, I'm riding, within 30 seconds, I hear the brake rubbing up against the tire, and I have to, like, tap it over, and I tapped it over, and then it would be fine for about 30 seconds, and then it would come back, and I would just hear it again. I rode for a long way with great irritation about my brakes. And I'm thinking, oh, I haven't ridden for a long time. My brakes are all bad. My bike's breaking. Oh, I got to get home. I got to fix it. I'm thinking the problem is the brakes. But I already told you, what was the problem? I put the wheel on wrong. Yesterday, when I finally got the bike into the house, and I was like, oh, okay, I'm going I'm to fix these brakes. I put the wheel on, and it wasn't, work. It, 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 it wasn't having a problem. Because I realized at that moment, oh, the wheel was on wrong. You see, what Paul does here with the Philippians is says, when you think about humility and pride, you are oriented wrong. Let me give you an example. Let me show you how, what it means. You and I, we think that pride is loving yourself too much. And so the opposite of that, obviously, is you hate yourself. So what we need to do with, you know, Christians is we need to find that happy medium. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for disaster. I struggle with this, and I think the solution is, oh, I, I, I'm thinking so highly of myself. Oh, Joe, you're such an idiot. Why'd you say that? Why'd you do that? Why didn't you say that? Why didn't you think that? Oh, okay, okay, I'm not that bad. Okay, actually, I'm pretty great. Pretty awesome. Wow. I'm really great. No, 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 that's wrong. That's wrong. Oh, I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that? Does anybody else struggle with this? What Paul does, he says, stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at yourself and reorient on Christ. Stop looking at you and reorient on the true Lord of the universe, true example of humility, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, 
my uh, wife doesn't like the smell of campfire. And so for Mother's Day a few years ago, I gave her a, a fire pit. Yep, uh, that's about right. And then over Thanksgiving, I spent a long time. You know, I was over at the Robles house, and I saw what they had, and I was like, oh, I need to have this. I, Thanksgiving all day or all week, I spent building a fire pit seating area, uh, you know, leveling the rocks, posts, lights, electricity, all, uh, gravel. It, it, looks, it looks amazing. It looks so great. It looks so great. And my wife loves me enough to come out occasionally to love me. Um, but we had to bury six posts, six large posts to hang the lights on, like fence, fencing posts. And so I had to dig two and a half, six two and a half feet deep holes. And I measured it right so that they were ex- in the exact position in this circle. Didn't want to get it off even by an inch. And so my father-in-law came over and helped me. And over 70-year-old, 70-year-old, he was out there digging trenches for me. Wow. So we bury four of the posts. And I get to the fifth post. And I'm digging. And as I'm digging, I hit a rock. Okay, not a big deal. i got to find the edge of this rock. So I start digging around the rock. The problem is, I never found the edge. This rock kept on going, I mean, it was humongous. It was huge. And I had to put a post right there. So what do I do? I move the post, absolutely, right? I don't bury it there. There's a rock there. I can't get it up. I move the post over an inch. If you come over, you'll see that there's one post that's over like a few inches. I buried it to the side where I did find the edge of that. This giant rock sat in, sits to this day in our backyard. What I want to do in this text is that what this is, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, in many ways, is this giant rock in the scriptures. It is a giant rock of faith. And so what I want us to do is I want to metaphorically take this rock up Wipe off all the dirt and silt and dust on it and hold it up and see what it is. The rest is all dirt and silt. Beautiful, wonderful. I love my fire pit. It's amazing. But this rock is solid. So let's look at this answer to this reorientation of, well, our lives, of what humility is. This big rock, this pillar. Uh, We need to wipe it away and see it. So verse 6 through 11 are a pre-Pauline creed. This is what most uh, um, commentators believe about this text, is that when you're reading it, what Paul does is he's talking about humility, got to be humble, got to be humble. You know, this reminds me of this creed that the church has been saying since Jesus ascended. This is a creed that has been written that many of the churches, all of the, the Orthodox churches all around have been saying, this creed, this solid rock that it is. And you can see it stylistically, it's a bit different, and its core is Jesus. And so it's a, it's a poem, right? Um, you don't see this in the, uh, in the ESV. Why? I don't know, because they were terrible. You see it in KJV, NIV, a lot of the other texts that you see that it's a poem. Um, in a few weeks, 
the adult discipleship ministries, we're going to be doing a, like another live stream book panel type thing. We did this a few months ago. We're going to do it again, this time on the poem of Ecclesiastes 3, um, a Time to Live, A Time to Die. You know that poem? So we're going to be doing that poem. When you read poetry, it's different. Poetry is not about precision. It's about how you feel. Now, this poem is perfect. This poem is theologically perfect. But the point is not precision. The point is bringing us to a moment, bringing us to a time, a feeling of what it's about. And so what is, how does it start? Verse 6 points us to who Jesus is, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He voluntarily gave up his position. Now, what does all this mean? We're not going to go into a large anthropology about Jesus. If you want to talk about the hypostatic union, we can talk about that later. You can ask a question about it at the Q&A if you want to. Please don't do that. Uh, because that would just be really boring for all of us. But what that's doing is it points to the preeminence of Christ. Christ, the Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is God. I was talking with a woman right after the service, the first service, and she said, I, got, I have a, a three-year-old and a five-year-old. How do I explain the Trinity to them? And so I said, you don't. Uh, you can do a lot of those al- analogies like ice and water and fire, or the, the three-leaf clover in Ireland, all those things. And they are, they're all terrible. They're all bad. Um, there's one God and he exists in three persons. What this is pointing out is Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is the great God of the universe. It is not enough to say Jesus is God. You need to believe it and see that he is the son of God. True God of true God, very God of very God, the second person of the Trinity. Um, Tim Keller, when he was writing about this or preaching about it, he, uh, he said, when you read scriptures about Jesus, no one walks away thinking, oh, I really like that guy. No one in the Bible thinks, oh, Jesus is just a nice guy. No, what Tim Keller says, and I believe it, there are three responses people have to Jesus in the scripture. Either I hate him and I want him dead. I'm terrified of him and I want to get away from him. Or he's Lord and I want to worship him. Those are the three responses that people have in scripture to Jesus. Jesus is not to be trifled with. He is the great God, sovereign of the universe. Um, modern people like to say that they like Jesus, they like his teaching, they like, you know, just like what he's about necessarily. Uh, but I don't want to believe that he's God. I don't want to believe that he's preeminent and great. I want to believe that he's a good teacher, right? That's, you've heard that before. My favorite non-scriptural Christmas story happened in the year of 325. It was a couple years ago. Constantine was the emperor of Rome. The church had gone through great persecution. And now they were having this problem where there were people in the church, leaders in the church that were saying, Jesus is not God. 
he's just a little bit less. And there were other people, Orthodox leaders and church believers, that said, Jesus is God. Now, they hadn't yet quite figured out a lot of the Trinitarian documentation, you know, one, person, uh, th- one God and three persons. They hadn't quite figured a lot of that out, but they know Jesus is God. So Constantine, with a couple of other people, they call the Nicene Council. We get the Nicene Creed that comes out of this. He calls the Nicene uh, Council, and all parties came. The people who said Jesus is not God, just a little bit less, they were over here. And the people who said Jesus is God, and then actually the vast majority of leaders that came to the Nicene uh, Council, they didn't really know. They were like, I I don't understand. I kind of like a little bit of what both are people saying, so I, I don't understand it. And so, one day during the Nicene Council in April of 325, one of the men of this party, Arius is the main guy, if you want to know about that, you can talk about that later. Arius is the main guy, he probably wasn't there, but one of his followers uh, was up front, and he was boisterously arguing that Jesus is not God, but Jesus is a little bit less. In the back, there was this old man, St. Nicholas. Richmond, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. St. Nicholas of Myra, an old man. He probably wasn't wearing red. He probably didn't have a belly full of jelly or whatever it is. But St. Nicholas of Myra, a true man, humble Gentle. He was so gentle that he would go around on Christmas morning giving gifts to children. He was on a cane because he had suffered under the great Diocletian persecution. He had been beaten, tortured, imprisoned because he was a Christian. And here he was in the back of a room listening to this man declare Jesus is not God, just a little bit less. And so Santa Claus stands up, walks on his cane up to the front, and punches the guy in the face. Santa Claus punched the guy. Santa Claus punched this guy. They didn't know what to do. This is a gentle old man. They didn't know what to do. So they, they like, threw him in jail. What is... What does church jail look like? I don't know. They threw him in jail and they were like, what do we do? Constantine, what do we do? We we don't understand. They finally let him out of jail after a day and he came back in and joined in with the rest of the Nicene Council. I want to know what the area, this party over here that believed that Jesus is not God, but less than God. I wonder what they did when St. Nick walked back into the room. I I just want to know what that would have been looked like. I don't know. But St. Nicholas punched the guy because he said, an attack on Jesus is like an attack on me. He was attacking my Lord, and it was like an attack on me, personally. And I couldn't stand it. Wow. I say that story. It's a great Christmas story. It's fun. I say that story because... The true rock that we're looking at, this doctrine of who Jesus is, is not just theological inquiry. It is life. It's what we're about. It's who we're about. It's how our behavior is. 
It's what we believe, how we act, how we interact with others. It's important. Jesus is the very God of the universe, uncreated and the eternal God, one substance and equal with the Father. Verse 7, we get to the incarnation. The incarnation reveals the grace of God. He emptied himself. Athanasius, one of the, guy who, one of the other guys that was over on the good side of this, he said, he didn't stop being God when he became man. It's not like he just said, okay, I'm no longer God and now I'm man. No, he became, he veiled his deity and did not void his deity. He simply took on the flesh of mankind. When Jesus incarnated, when he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Jesus didn't pull any punches in saving his people. That's two references to punching. In other words, Jesus didn't do the bare minimum of saving his people. He went the farthest. He went as far as one can go. Nay, he went farther than any of us can go. He went as far as God can go to save his people. We need the incarnation because we need grace. Amen? We can't do this unless God incarnates and becomes flesh. No one can can void sin. No one can save unless you are as powerful as God. And yet no one... And yet no one can represent humanity unless you're man. Jesus is both God and man graciously saving us. This personal salvation that the incarnation proves, this personal encounter is what you and I need. He lowered himself to the point of becoming a poor, itinerant preacher without a home, without a bed, By the end, without friends. And he lowered himself to the point of the cross. Uh, Tom Torrance wrote this, and I just think it's a great quote about the incarnation. In Jesus Christ, we meet the very embodiment of the majestic sovereignty of God, breaking into the world to claim it for himself. The coming of Emmanuel, God himself to be with us and one of us. And specifically named Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He lowered himself in the incarnation, giving us grace. Giving us grace. So verse 8 shows us the next step in this, the crucifixion. The crucifixion reveals the love of God. The reason why I say the love of God is because John wrote it in his letter. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a, on a cross. Um, this wouldn't be a, a Protestant sermon unless I quoted C.S. Lewis. I, I met my quota, so there you go. Here's a C.S. Lewis quote. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. 
He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load. Almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. When the great God of the universe, sovereign Lord, when he descended on that cross, dying the horrible, scandalous, terrible death of a criminal, he disappeared. He disappeared into the depths of humanity at that moment, into the depths of sin. He didn't physically disappear. You know what I'm saying. He disappeared into the depths of it. Guys, when we think about the incarnation, we think about Christmas, and I love my little tyke's nativity scene. It's super cute. I love it. It's super cute. Christmas is a cute story. It really is. I mean, you got a baby in it. I mean, how can you get any cuter than that? But the incarnation is more than just the birth. The incarnation is Jesus taking on flesh. And we believe, okay, God of the universe, maybe he, become, he can become a baby. Maybe he can become an itinerant preacher without a bed and all that stuff. But the God of the universe can't go that far, dying the death of a criminal. The incarnation and the crucifixion point not just to the grace of God that we need it, points to the love of God. God loves you more than you love you. And speaking to a proud Philippians and speaking to a proud West End Prez congregation, we need to hear that. Jesus loves you more than you love you. And if you do heart analysis, you realize that's a lot. Amen? The cross stands not as a symbol of death, it is a symbol of love. The cross stands as real love in a real world of hate. And so verse 9, we get to the exaltation of Christ, reveals the hope we have in God. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Um, I've been doing a little research recently on um, isolation because that's what you and I are going through. Um, There's these researchers, Nathan Smith and Emma Barrett, that I've been reading a lot from, and they do a lot of research around ICE populations, I-C-E, isolated, confined, extreme populations, Um, like astronauts, uh, Antarctic explorers. Uh, prisoners, you know, these isolated individuals. And they do this research to figure out, you know, what are some common experiences of these folks who are in extreme isolation? So here's what they came up with. Here's what they see in a lot of their research. They have trouble adapting to this new environment. Their routine has changed. They have trouble understanding real threats and real dangers because They don't understand, well, they're uncertain about what's happening outside. And they're also uncertain about what's happening inside. They struggle with monotony. They struggle with boredom. They struggle with low mood. Just like low mood, you know? Like if you're 10 is like crazy, 1 is is like asleep, we want to operate at a 5, but they're... They're at like a two, 
low motivation. They don't want to do things. They just don't feel like it. And lastly, the, uh, there's a paradox of social proximity versus social separation. Uh, anyone who's a, in a family, you know, understand, you understand this paradox. I'm isolated from the world, and yet all of a sudden these people are right next to me, and I want them to leave. Uh, at the beginning of the quarantine, I started a project of carving chess pieces. That's right. That's right. I started a project of carving my own chess pieces. I got some pawns done, and then I got to the hard pieces, and those pieces of wood now can be viewed at the mausoleum that is a bottom drawer in my house that I have not touched in many months. I had all this motivation at the beginning, and now I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. It's a lot of work. Does anybody else struggle with this? Anybody, anybody else struggle with monotony, boredom, low mood, low motivation, struggling with adapting, struggling with understanding where threats are, struggling with the uncertainty of when are we going to get out of this? The exaltation of Christ by God the Father gives us hope that one day we will be exalted too. We just sung a song written by Charles Wesley, right, that talks about, oh, shoot, what's the, uh, um, oh, hold on, I'm going to get there. What's that, what's the verse? Lori, what was that word that we were talking about? The dreadful, why can't I find it? Dreadful majesty, the dreadful majesty of God. Every knee shall bow. Every head will bow. Even those that don't want to. Even those that don't care to at this moment. You see, you and I, we have a future bowing before the God of the universe, the sovereign throne that is Jesus. He has been exalted, highly exalted above all. He is not just below God. He is God, highly exalted, seated at the throne of the Father. We have a hope that we will partake in that exaltation. We have a resurrection. We have a resurrection. That resurrection came in Jesus. That resurrection we partake in. For anyone that has lost loved ones in the past, we hope in the resurrection Our life does not end here. Our life begins there. Amen? The exaltation of Christ reveals the hope we have in God. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? So verses 10 through 11 answer this question, so what? We've been talking about this great rock wiping away the silt, if you will. Verses 10 through 11, yeah, we're going to... You can read that Westminster Confession Faith section later. Verses 10 through 11, our response should be faith in God. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will acknowledge Jesus is Lord. The great sovereign of the universe 
incarnated and became flesh because he loves us, because he is gracious to us, because he wants to give us hope, and because we can believe in him. So we didn't, shouldn't deceive ourselves, though. So what? A great Jewish teacher of the first century cannot satisfy the longings of our souls. Here's uh, my final quote for this morning. This comes from uh, J. Gresham Machen, and he writes this. The Christian message contains more than the fact of the resurrection. It's not enough to know that Jesus is alive. It's not enough to know that a wonderful person lived in the first century of the Christian era, and that person still lives somewhere and somehow today. Jesus lives, and that's well, but what good is it to us? For those of us who go to church and talk about that all the time, what good is that to us? We're like the inhabitants of far-off Syria or Phoenicia in the days of his flesh. There's a wonderful person who can heal every ill of body and mind, but alas, we're not with him, and the way is far. How shall we come into his presence? How shall contact be established between us and him? For the people of ancient Galilee, contact was established by a touch of Jesus' hand or a word from his lips. But for us, the problem is not so easy. We cannot find him by the lake shore or in crowded houses. We cannot be lowered into any room where he sits and scribes and where he sits amid scribes and Pharisees. If we employ only our own methods of search, we shall find ourselves on a fruitless pilgrimage. Surely we need guidance if we're to find our Savior. Friends, we've been looking at this rock. We don't find it. We don't find God. God finds us. God, though, that's what Christmas is about. That's what incarnation is about. That's what the crucifixion is about. That's what the ascension is about. That's what resurrection is about. It is not about us searching and finding because we're going to look in the wrong places. I'm going to think my problem's the brakes, and God says the problem's the tire. I'm going to think that I can't, I shouldn't love myself, so I'm going to hate myself. No, God says, stop it. Stop it. Look to me. Jesus says, I find you. That's the great power of the gospel. We can have hope that God finds us. We can have hope that if you are hopeless this morning, if you're hopeless in this pandemic, join the club. We're all hopeless every now and then. But know that your God is with you. Your God sees you. Your God is gracious to you. Your God loves you. Your God gives you hope. You can have faith in the true power of that rock who is Jesus. Don't place your hope in other things. Place it in the rock of Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you that you are the great rock of our salvation. I thank you for the power of these words of Paul written in Philippians. Lord Jesus, you are not just a great man. You are... God himself, God incarnate, we know God because you reveal it to us. You reveal him yourself to us. Help us to believe it for my brothers and sisters and for myself as well. Give us faith, hope, love, and grace. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. We now come to the part of our service where we confess our sins together. This is in your bulletin as well as up on the screens behind me. Let's read this together. 
Lord, you created man from the dust of the earth and made and formed him in your image and likeness, good, just, and holy. We were able by our own will to conform in all things to your perfect will. But when we were in honor, we did not understand it, and we did not recognize our excellence. We subjected ourselves willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, listening to the word of the devil. For we transgressed the commandments of life, which we had received, and by our sin we separated ourselves from you, our true life, and we corrupted our entire nature. So we made ourselves guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death. We became wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all our ways. We forfeited all the excellent gifts which we have received from your hand, and we retain none of them except for small traces which are enough to make us inexcusable. Moreover, all the light in us is turned to darkness. As the scripture teaches us, the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not receive it. Here John calls all of us darkness. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.